Hello, listeners. This is Red Red Wine by UB40. I'm going to let this play a little bit, then we'll get into the program. Thank you for joining me in the new year. I appreciate you. Welcome to episode 121 of the Blake Mayfield podcast. I am your host, Blake Mayfield, and I'm here today with the owner and winemaker of Bernsini Vineyards, a local winery and tasting room located in Cottonwood and Redding, California. Her name is Brandy Green, and she was nice enough to sit down with me today to kick off 2022. How are you doing, Brandy? I'm doing great. Awesome. Thank you for coming. I appreciate it. Yeah, this, thanks for this having is me. Very cool. It's, I've never had a winery person or a person that like owns a bar or a tap room or anything on. So this is the first for me. So wow. we're not. Well, I would. I was gonna say we're not up early, but those of us that grow the grapes, we're up early. You have to <laughs> so, be up early. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. No, I appreciate it. Thank you. Absolutely. I want to give a special shout out and thank you to all the Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud listeners. Thank you guys very much for tuning in. I appreciate you guys very much. And I want to let you guys know that I have free Blake Mayfield podcast coffee mugs available. I was waiting until we were on the air to give you a couple gifts, Brandy. So I have Blake Mayfield podcast coffee mug. And then I have a couple hats as well. I did not get rid of last year, so there's a couple hats as well. So a couple awesome. souvenirs for the road for you. I like it. So, yeah, it's a dad hat for sure, but, yeah, you can adjust it in the back and everything. Yeah. But Yeah. So I do have Blake Mayfield Podcast coffee mugs available for you guys now that it is winter time and it's cold out. So if you guys want a free mug, just hit me up on Instagram at BlakeMayfield23, and I'll be sure to get one out to you as soon as possible. And last but not least, I want to give a special shout-out and thank you to our sponsor, Black Rose Coffee and Tea. And let me pull up their sponsorship. Here we go. Are you starting a brand new diet and want something organic and delicious? Want to support a locally owned and operated family business? Have you ever tried peanut butter in your coffee? Well, if you answered yes to any of these questions, then you should try out Black Rose Coffee and Tea. At Black Rose Coffee and Tea, you'll find all sorts of pairings you full. I'm sorry, you won't find anywhere else, such as the white chocolate and peanut butter blend called the Ecstasy, organic on tap kombucha, and the chance to make your furry best friend Instagram famous through their at dogs of Black Rose page. Visit Black Rose Coffee and Tea at 9539 Old Oregon Trail in Redding, California, open seven days a week. Bring the kids, dogs, or whoever you hold near and dear to you and rethink the way you coffee today. And without further ado, let's get into it. So, Thank you for coming on. This yeah. is a little different for me. I want to get into just kind of your origin story, how you became the owner. You said that you aren't the actual founder and you were wanting to kind of give the backstory to that. So I guess we could start there. What is the backstory and the origin story of Bernsini Vineyards? Yeah, so it started, um, in fact, the grapes were planted back in the 80s. They're nearly as old as I am by the original founders, the Burnhams and the Tomasinis, who were just friends who lived out in Cottonwood and started planting grapes and making wine for for fun in their garage. And it was a hobby that got a little out of control. Pretty soon there was eight acres of vines, a massive winery, and the county said, all right, boys, get it together. You've got to go legit. And so in 2000, they filed all the paperwork and became a bonded winery in the state of California and in the U.S. And 
I would say the rest is history, but you know, it's it's been 21 years now of commercial production in Tehama County, and for our local winemaking, that's that's a pretty long amount of commercial winemaking here. Um, yeah. I took over in 2017, and so um, I'm born and raised from the Reading area. I went away to school and studied winemaking because science was always it for me, but. Um, when I found out that I could combine chemistry and alcohol, I was like, ding, 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 that's the degree for me. Yeah, <laughs> um, for and, sure. And yeah, so I, I have a degree in um, fermentation science, specifically winemaking, brewing, um, and distilling. And so after working all over the West Coast at different wineries and then uh, working as an environmental scientist for the last 16 years, I... Yeah, purchased Bernsini in 2017, and we've been forcing growth for the past almost five years now. So we've about doubled in size at this point. We've we've doubled production, and this year my goal is to double sales. So nice. That's where we sit. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. Was that a thing when you were working um, at all the different <clears throat> excuse me uh, wineries and breweries and stuff to? one day own your own or did it just kind of happen for you? No, I knew, I knew in 2000. So the year that Bernsini was founded as a commercial winery and not because of a relationship with this particular winery, but it just coincides with when I started studying wine. Um, I knew then that I wanted my own winery. I had zero, probably negative understanding of how I was going to get from studying winemaking, making wine as a job to actually owning and operating a winery because those two generally are not related. A lot of folks who own and operate wineries in California, their parents or their grandparents owned and operated wineries. Grandfather Yes. You don't just buy one. Um, That is just not really how it tends to work. Um, And... When I moved back to the Reading area in 2007 or 2008, I think, I I still had that dream, but it was not – there was no path forward for it. I did not see, and I, I had no understanding of how I would get there. Um, but I just kept kind of participating in that industry, joined the local viticulture association and started helping out there and getting an understanding for what was – was going on locally in the wine industry. And um, yeah, in 2017, a buddy of mine reached out and he said, hey, my wife and I are looking at Bernsini to buy. Did you know it was for sale? And I said, yeah, I did. But I don't have that kind of money in my savings account. Right, yeah. Um, And he was like, well, would you want to come be the winemaker? And then before we even got too far through that process, it was like, why don't you join the ownership team? And um, and then they stayed on as investors, and a few other friends came in, and yeah, we made it work. So, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. What's your favorite? Um, probably Zinfandel. I, I say that I often default to saying I love a big, hearty red Zin. Um, the truth of the matter is, it changes whatever we're working on at the winery, like whatever we most recently put out or, or release is always going to be my favorite because I have just put so much effort and time into perfecting that wine and getting it into the bottle that I just, there's like a labor of love associated with it that I, 
I can't let go of until I've, you know, seen it in other people's glasses. So right now, that is our 2017 Cabernet Sauvignon. We just released it in November. It's delicious. It's the cab that I am most proud of putting out ever at this point. And I'll tell you what, though, anytime I open a bottle of Zin, there is, you know, how your your sense of smell and your sense of taste or sense of memory are very, very closely related and sense of smell can jog memories for you and there is this smell associated with freshly opened Zinfandel for me that smells like the cellar of the first winery I ever worked in when I was like 18 or 19 years old way before I was 21 um okay that it puts me there instantly and I mean like it's almost a full physical body reaction of feeling like I'm that really young girl in this massive wine cellar, not really knowing what I'm doing, but just being like, I love this. I, I have to figure out how to do this for the rest of my life. Um, so for that reason, it's usually Zinfandel. Okay. Yeah. So you said you just released the 2017 Cabernet. How, I have no idea about this stuff. How does that work? Do you have the grapes and everything been fermenting for four years or, or did you make it four years ago? Then it sits in the bottle so it can... I mean, how does, because, you know, people drink aged whiskey or aged wine, and it's supposed to be a lot more um, euphoric, I guess. It, it gets you uh, buzzed quicker, I suppose. But I have no idea how that process even works. How does that stuff work? So it's not fermenting that whole time, no. The fermentation process is actually quite short, um, somewhere between, like, three weeks and three months. Um, there's a secondary, and that's the alcohol. That's the primary alcohol fermentation. So that happened. These grapes were picked, this specific wine, this 2017 cab. These grapes were picked in the fall of 2017. They were actually picked on Labor Day weekend of the fall of 2017. So that first weekend of September. Um, And because our our grapes always ripen in like the same order. So I know which which one we're picking at which time of the year. (laughs) So those those came out in Labor Day weekend of 2017. They started fermenting about four days after we picked them. It generally takes my wines with my winemaking style about three weeks to go through their primary alcohol production fermentation. Um, There's a lot more going on than just alcohol production at that stage, but primarily sugars, are being converted to CO2, alcohol, and heat by yeast. Um, so that's okay. that's the science side of it. And then gotcha. um, it's really not ready to be drank at that point. You don't want to drink that wine. It does not taste good. So it goes into barrels, or maybe it goes into stainless. It's, it's going to go through an aging process. Um, and so that wine for, for this 2017 cab sat in a different type of barrel. So it it sat either in neutral or new oak barrels for a few months, and then it all went into neutral oak, and it aged for years. So it was bottled bottled right before harvest this year, so right before harvest of 2021. It was taken out of the barrels, blended together, um, which is a process where I'm tasting and identifying which barrels I want blended together to make this final wine product. And it's a combination of wine that's been in the new oak. So it's had a lot of oak flavors, which can be everything from, oh, this actually tastes like oak wood, to vanilla, to caramel. It's it, There's a lot of flavors that are associated with wine being aged in oak. Um, and it's blended with wine that went into oak that's no longer giving off those kinds of flavors. We call that neutral oak. And mm. 
you mix a little bit of each together to try and find like a really well-balanced, delicious wine that has a lot of interesting flavors for you to kind of dig through, um, but also is not too harsh on your tongue or too sweet or too sour. Um, Yeah, so that blending process took place this summer. We bottled right before harvest, and then after harvest, it was ready to needs to spend a little time in the bottle. That's the period that we call bottle shock, and there's a whole movie about it. But um, it is the bottling process is pretty harsh on wine, um, and it's not going to hurt it in a long-term way, but it, it there's a lot of oxygen introduction during the bottling process. And we have a very – I mean, we're, we're super lucky to have a bottling line here at our winery, but we have a pretty – remedial body bottling line and so there's there's just we take that extra step of letting it go through bottle shock in the bottle we put it back in the cellar keep it cold for a couple more months and by the end all of the fruit flavor has come back and it's a really beautiful wine to give to the public so okay and that's red white that's for all of them or is that just red no that's that's red white uh rosé that's everything we do um we did not because so we put out for the first time this year a natural sparkling wine, and I did not find that it needed the bottle shock, but that actually makes sense because the CO2 bubbles are what's gone into solution, has gone into the wine, um, and so it gets bottled while it's still fermenting, and so then there's all this CO2 in there. It's very easy to to keep it from the oxygen, it puts out its own CO2 at that point. So it did not need um, kind of that lay down period. We needed it because it's very physically demanding to make that wine. <laughs> so we needed a little bit of time, but um, the wine was fantastic and ready to drink. Our first sparkling wine was out in May or June of this year. So. Oh, okay. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. So when it goes into these barrels and stuff like that, is it like a temperature-controlled room? Can can the barrels get hot or warm? I mean, the summers get very hot here. They and then do. the winters get, you know, it's not crazy, but, you know, it can get pretty cold, you know, December, January, you know, right. this time of year. What's that process like? I mean, do they have to sit in a controlled room or like, I just, I have no idea. So yeah, I'm asking. So, so we have a room that we call our barrel room and there's nothing but barrels in there. It is temperature-controlled um, for coolness. But also our building is like an 18-inch thick concrete building. So it's very self-insulating in that way. Um, as long as we keep it cool, it will stay cool. Um, so we did install um, a massive solar s- array this year um, to offset the amount of energy we use in the summers. Um, it is a huge aspect of how I run the winery to be um, focused on our environmental impact. And so... Being able to, to take that massive amount of energy we use for air conditioning of that room and of the winery and of the cellar where the finished wine bottles are <laughs> um, and kind of offset it with solar was – that's been a goal for a few years. and We finally achieved it this year right before summer. We had oh, full nice. solar going. Yeah. That's cool. <laughs> so yeah. We're already recognizing the benefits of that financially sure. and, and then for the environment as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So why – Red, um, rosé, what's your favorite and why? Uh, my favorite is red for sure, hands down without question. 
But there are whites that I think would blow people's mind. There are whites that if you were doing a blind tasting, you would insist that it was a red. Um, There's also some weird whites. And I think weird wine is the most exciting thing about wine. Um, And so there's like, there's this one grape called a Gruner Vertliner and it's a freaking fantastic grape. We don't grow a lot of it here. We don't grow any at Bernsini, but there's a little bit grown in Tehama County. And it makes this super weird, earthy, citrus. It's just a great white wine that is nothing like what I think folks think of, you know, really buttery Chardonnays or really vegetal um, Pinot Gris and things like that. And it, it's nothing like that at all. And so I, I think if you get weird with wine, you can find something in every like zone that you'll like. Um, but yeah, you might run into some weird wines that you don't like. Um, I'm almost always happy with a red though. I even, even a mediocre red is, is a good day for me. (laughs) Um, and then, you know, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be running a winery that makes all reds and rosés if I didn't love red wine. So, right. Yeah. So you guys only, only make reds and rosés. Currently. Yeah. Um, so there's, Winery equipment is made in one of two ways, where it can be used for both red and white and where it can be used just for reds. And right now, most of the equipment we have is just for reds. Um, And as we replace equipment, as it ages or as better, more... um, more useful equipment comes along or, you know, we can afford to replace things, we'll buy stuff that can do both and we'll start making some whites. But we don't currently have um, a few key pieces of equipment, specifically a press that can do that because white wines are pressed um, like whole cluster or when the grapes are fresh off the vine, like the day the grapes are picked, those those grapes are, are pressed. Um, And that's opposite of red wine. You press it after the primary fermentation. And so our press just isn't built for that kind of work and kind of just says, absolutely not. I will not participate in this. So, um, yeah, and that's that's a big piece of equipment. So we'll replace it eventually. We'll get something that's just as reliable, but that can do both. Um, And until then, there's some sneaky ways to do some weird whites in the same manner that you do reds. And so I'm hoping in like the next year or two to get some small batches of some fun white wine, white wine grapes and um, try to do some small batch white wine in the way that you do red wine. See if that's um, something that folks in this area are ready for. They may not be, but I like to push them. So. Yeah, you got to like, try stuff. Yeah, Absolutely. and I mean, we, we have so many folks here who come in and they have an idea of what wines they do and don't like. And um, I like to I like to push that envelope and let them, you know, try some things that they're sure they're not going to like and show them that it's, you know, they're, they're likely to find something they enjoy if they just keep trying more wine. So. It's really not that bad. Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, you, there's certainly things that aren't going to be your favorite, but um, I, I'm probably never going to be able to produce, like, just a super oaky, buttery Chardonnay. Like, the, we don't have a need for that in my wine lineup, but I feel like we could probably produce a weird sparkling white that people would be super into. So that's kind of my goal at this point. 
So you bring up the equipment and stuff like that, and that was actually my next question was, is there like a different process between white and, and red wine? Because red seems more aged and it seems yeah. more finished and whatnot, where white seems, and it, it makes sense, like you said, you know, you pick the grapes and then right away you start doing the white. I'm not a big white wine fan, personally. I don't drink a lot of wine. I would love to try yeah, sometime. Yeah. But that process, I mean, how does that go besides just the grapes? I mean, is there a different, you know, you said the bottling, you, yeah. you have, to have like nitric oxide and all this stuff. I mean, how does that go for white wine? So, What's different about it? So there's a lot of options for the winemaker. Um, and so I'm just going to say what like standard conventional practices which is not necessarily what I do, and it's not necessarily what a lot of small boutique wineries do because you have to get weird and you have to adapt to the equipment you have and the things you can accomplish and what you can borrow from your neighbors. <laughs> so um, standard conventional white winemaking, you pick the grapes, you bring them in that day, you either remove them from the stem or don't remove them from the stem through the same process that red wine grapes would go through. And it's this weird contraption literally called a crusher destemmer, And it smashes the grape skin open and pulls the grape off of each stem. And the grape, the physical round berry of the grape falls through and moves into the tank. And the stem gets spit out the end by an auger. And you just get mm. a big bucket of stems at the end. Um, if you're making white wine with that, it would go directly into the press, which is a massive contraption that either has a big bladder inside of some sort and it fills up with compressed air and squashes the liquid out of the grapes. That is conventional. It would get inoculated that day or the next day. It might go through a cold um, soak to drop all the solids out if, if you wanted to do that. And then it would get inoculated with yeast and start the primary fermentation, alcohol fermentation right away. Um, and then, you know, that would be done in a few weeks and you would chill it off again. And you might put it in stainless steel or you might put it in oak, depending on what you're making, but not for very long. And it would be going to bottle within just a few months, whereas okay. red wine wouldn't at all. You know, it would be going to barrel within a few months, and then it would be sitting in barrel for many, many months. Um, small wineries, we are weird, weird creatures, and we use the equipment we have, and we use it in funny ways, and um, I think every small business owner, no matter the industry, but especially ones related to, like, farm, to agriculture, to growing a product, you are used to rigging things and making them work the best you can for what for what you have because that type of equipment is meant to work for decades and decades and decades and so you don't just replace it because there's something better on the market. Um, you keep using what you have and you adapt it in ways uh, which is that's how our sparkling wine came to be was me being like you know I think that we don't have a cooling process we don't have a glycol system but I think that I could use this massive old chest freezer that I have and adapt it and make it work for chilling off this sparkling wine and it did it worked great it's broken now it turns mm. out it was a one and done situation yeah. <laughs> but it was a freezer we weren't using and at least you did it once yeah, yeah. And, and we learned a lot and so now we know how to do it next time without breaking a freezer and um, without that day of panic of like oh no the freezer's broken <laughs> how are we going to save the wine um, but yeah I, mean, I think pivoting and adapting 
is uh, the hallmark of any small business owner. So same for winemakers. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, transitioning out of that and, and pivoting and whatnot, you guys opened up a new tasting room in Reading last month. Yes. How's that been? Stressful? Uh, Has it been successful? It's been incredibly successful. It's very exciting. Um, it was stressful up until the morning of the opening. Sorry, give me no, one sec. I'm sorry. Fine. We'll be right back. Okay, and we're back. So just asked you about opening the tasting room. Had to cut you off. I'm sorry. Nice. Um, you just opened it up. You said it's been incredibly successful, and I'll just let you go from there. Yeah, it was... Uh, the entire month has been really incredible. A lot of support. So many new faces. Um, but yeah, up until the minute we opened, it was very stressful. We got a lot of support from the chamber and from locally, local assemblywoman um, Megan Dolly's office to oh, make wow. that opening happen. Um, and that was greatly appreciated. It was nice to know that um, the chamber really truly believes that their their purpose is to support small business and that um, that was backed up by them reaching out to the Assemblywoman's office and um, her office legitimately like pushing to help get this open and, and make sure it all worked out for me. I maybe am a little jaded and didn't feel like even maybe local politicians took that um, as seriously as I, as I, you know, felt like they did. Cause they've, they really, they were like, nope, we are going to make this happen. We will get you in business. And I was like, sure you will. But, right. um, yeah. but they did. And, and I'm incredibly grateful. Uh, but since, yeah, since we've opened, it's been fantastic. We're open Thursday, Friday, Saturday of each week inside the enjoy store. Um, and the enjoy store is in the old board mart location. So as like oh. an old school Reddingite, who used to, you know, rent my boards there when I was growing up. Yeah. It's a really cool feeling to see that building reimagined as the Enjoy store, and Enjoy has so much more space now. So we're at uh, 1261 Market Street, so that's right there where you're coming into downtown. Um, right across from, like, Kobe's and, and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah, okay. and those cool little, uh, like, motels that have been redone, um, and those places are packed. We've gotten... So many customers coming in being like, oh, the hotel told us you have a wine bar. And you do. <laughs> I'm like, yes, <Yeah. laughs> come on in. Um, so, yeah, we're inside the Enjoy store, which has been really fun because they've been able to um, have folks add wine to their baskets. So they do all of those gift baskets during the holidays. They do them all year long with all of their incredible local um, goodies. And this year they were able to have local wine in there too. So that was, you know, super beneficial to both parties, I think. Um, but it also means like we're doing some workshops, we're doing fun live music. We just are creating more of a like community space rather than just a storefront or just a wine shop. Um, we're hoping to have quite a few of their like makers and artists in to do workshops where, you know, you'll work on... Um, ceramics, cause they have some beautiful ceramics in there if you've ever seen them. And they're just, okay. they're really, really stunning stuff that I'm sure I could not make, but that this woman can make and can teach people to make in the Enjoy store. So the idea is you're going to buy a ticket to it. You're going to come be taught how to make this incredible platter and get to sip on my wine in the workshop. So I'm, I'm supportive. I'm supportive of that for sure. Yeah. Um, that's awesome. But yeah, we're doing a few other things. We've got first Friday, this, uh, Friday in downtown, which is for all, you know, local downtown shops. And, uh, we'll have 
Fiddleby in the Enjoy store this week. So they are a local, um, maybe jazz, bluegrass, folk roots. You said a blues <laughs> yeah. in the promo video. Yeah, yeah. bluegrass or I something. I think yeah. that they... I'll have to ask them because I'm sure that they have a very concise explanation for their sound. Um, but that's the genres that I would place them in. They're fantastic. They've played at the winery previously. We have big events down on the winery lawn in the summertime, and they've played down there in years past. And I'm excited to have them play this Friday. So they'll be there from 4 to 8 playing in the Enjoy store, and we'll be pouring wine, and Enjoy will be open. You know, So you can sip and shop. We basically have a built-in sip and shop every day we're open because you can grab your glass of wine and wander around the Enjoy store looking at like, I mean, how many makers do they have in there? Hundreds probably. And so you can check out from jewelry to like food and candy, chocolate, all kinds of stuff. So Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, they've got all kinds of stuff in there, which is is great. Yeah. And they've got more coming too. There's going to be a, a coffee roaster, an artisan baker. So the, the little area where the Bernsini wine bar is set up, um, there's actually going to be another bar next to it that's going to have some some pastries from the baker and <laughs> coffee Sweet. from the roaster. So, yeah. yeah. That's awesome. Exciting. Yeah. What is it like trying to get liquor licenses and stuff like that? Because I assume that is the biggest headache. It's always the paperwork and no one wants to do it. But it, it's what makes you official yes. as far as a business, as far as, you know, a, a legal obligation goes. How long does that process take? And, and you said it was actually a pretty easy process. I mean, did you expect it to be a headache? And how long does, does it take for you guys to basically get everything together? So it it is different every time, which is frustrating for a small business owner. Um, but there's reasons for that. Um, it's not a very straightforward process. And that was a conversation that I did have, um, because of having, um, Assemblywoman Dolly help with all of our stuff. Um, I was actually put in contact with, um, a woman named Candace at the ABC office and she, you know, explained some stuff to me. She came and did our inspection and, um, it was really nice to have her say that, I want to make this a more transparent process for small business owners. And um, and I don't think that anybody wants it to not be transparent. I think it's just a lot. And so right. it's very and, – and you definitely are putting the same information down on many, many different forms. And so it can just be overwhelming. And it's not like your business stops while you're doing this process. Right. So yeah. Um, I want to say that for this location, and this is just a duplicate of my primary license, so this isn't this isn't the same as just a, a somebody going and getting a new license. I'm an already licensed producer of wine, and it was still, you know, a lot to take care of. Um, also, it was harvest, and we were making wine, <laughs> and we were opening a new location. So of course. Um, yeah. And and I work full time for an engineering firm during the week, so um, there's just a lot of hours in the day with that are full of stuff. But um, it it should be smoother than it is. But I think that's the case with any state run agency. You know, there's right. there's just a lot to do. So I would say, especially if you're buying someone else's liquor license, hire a lawyer. Um, okay. Get right. yourself a liquor lawyer. They're expensive and they're worth every single penny. Um, we did hire one when we bought the winery and I 
it was a saving grace. It's it is absolutely necessary. And I would if anyone was ever asking me, you know, how, how would you deal with this? Hire a lawyer. Hire a lawyer for sure. Um, buying a business is no joke. And I think a lot of times, especially small business owners, we think like we're just going to bootstrap it because that's what what we do. You're like that's, trained to do. Yes. Yeah. That's why we're in business is right. because we're willing to bootstrap everything and we're willing to figure out a way to make a path forward. And that's important. That's so much of the reason why small businesses succeed. But when it comes to alcohol or like, I mean, I shouldn't I shouldn't just say alcohol. I'm sure that it's the same for like firearms and for like tobacco, everything within the ATF world, um, probably cannabis, too. Um, get someone who knows the laws because it is not easy to interpret them. It's not easy to just understand why laws are written the way they are or what does and doesn't apply to your specific license. And I don't know. I don't have time to understand all of those things. I, right. I, I'm sure. Hire someone who does. Yes. You know? yeah. yeah. And who can answer your questions and who can um, really walk you through the process because I think that's the thing that you're not going to get from a like state or federal agency is they're not going to say, okay, step one is fill out these forms. And then this is step two. And this is what we're going to be doing behind the scenes while you're doing this. Right. They're not going to tell you those things. And so you're just going to be in the dark going, is my license coming? <laughs> you know, and, and in truth, they have a lot to do. You're just not aware of it. Um, and so, yeah, there's some humbling parts of getting a new liquor license that really – set you back. And I think probably a lot of small business owners, we have a little bit of an ego. That's probably what got us to running the show anyway. And so, yeah, when you get, when you get set back like that, or, or just come to find out that you're not as far along in a process as you had hoped, or that there's more to be done that you weren't even aware of, it's, it's humbling. (laughs) Yeah. It it builds character as our grandparents would say. (laughs) So much character. It it builds character. Yeah, for sure. So first Fridays, you brought it up. There's also a chocolate event. You got like these these chocolate truffles and stuff. I mean, what goes best with wine? I mean, it's always, you know, New York steak or ribeye, you know, steaks go good with wine. Candy goes good with it. Apparently, there's a a baker and stuff in the store I didn't even know about. Not yet, but they're, they're coming soon. Okay. Um, yeah, so... What goes best with wine, and your wine in particular? Certainly, chocolate is an easy pairing. Um, it's also, like, a really sexy pairing. Like, who doesn't want wine and chocolate? It just makes sense. Um, so, Chocolate Dana Nanette, who had a storefront ages ago, and has she has continued to produce these incredible truffles with, like... I don't even know... I think the the store, the Enjoy Store, probably carries 30 different options, but I'm not sure what her entire offering is. It's pretty vast. Um, so we chose three um, truffles that I've paired with three of our wines. I have chose wines that I feel are, like, quite sophisticated to pair with some really edgy flavors and then some wines that are just really, really drinkable that are the wines that I recommend – when anybody's like, I don't know what they drink, or I don't know what they're cooking, or I'm not sure what to serve, here, this wine, um, because it's just so universally appealing. Um, and so I've chose wines that kind of run the gamut there just so that 
if you are a wine drinker who loves really intricate and interesting wines, there's something for you that you're really going to dig into and enjoy. And if you're someone who's just getting into wines or really unsure of wines, wants to learn more, there's going to be a wine um, with really basic flavors and really easy to identify flavors. And I think that's the experience I'm hoping to give people is that they can taste through these chocolates, taste through these wines, and feel like they've actually learned something, but also that they've had an experience that they could engage with. I don't want wine tasting to ever be something that feels elitist or um, unattainable to folks. I, I do put on quite a few um, sensory workshops for people, always with the goal for them to be able to understand what they personally enjoy so that they know how better to choose their next wine, whether it be from the grocery store or from a boutique winery. I want them to enjoy the wine, um, no matter if it's a wine that I enjoy or not. That's not the point. It's their wine. It's if they enjoy it. Yeah. yeah. So if their favorite food is pizza, then I want to be able to give them a wine that they're going to enjoy with their pizza. If they're having, you know, incredibly artisan-created truffles, I want to be able to produce a wine that's going to go with that, too. I think that's the special thing about wine, though, is that it really – it can flex in a way that sometimes beer can't. Um, it's pretty hard until you get into some really heavy dark beers. It's pretty hard to get into those very like fancy flavors um, as easily. And then, yeah, with with um, spirits, sometimes it's hard to find a spirit that really can reach down to pizza level, you know. Um, and wine really kind of expands in that way pretty easily. So I'm hoping that that's going to make it a little more understandable for folks, especially folks here. We don't always have folks who are really well-versed in wine, um, and I'm happy to be the person that gets to introduce them and help them understand what they do and don't like and help them find wines that, you know, maybe they the last time they had wine was, you know, a, a grocery store special and it wasn't a great wine to start with and that's their experience with wine completely and so they don't want to have any more and there's so much more to wine than two buck chuck or boone's farm you know yeah um but it's it can be you know nobody wants to taste something that they don't enjoy and so helping folks figure out what they like is is pretty rewarding sometimes but it also means that like I made a product that their body physically enjoys. That's pretty rewarding to me. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so we've got on the 20th of January, the chocolate and wine pairing coming up. Tickets are available for that either in the Enjoy store or um, on Eventbrite. It's $25 a person. Uh, we're also putting together packets for that. So like um, say you have kids and you can't come in and do a wine tasting with your kid on your hip or just doesn't make sense to um you can purchase the bottles of wine and the chocolate pairing and take it home and do it at home when the kids go to bed so oh cool um okay. yeah I, th- I think there's there's folks that that's going to make more sense for um and then yeah we have a barrel tasting coming up at the winery on january 22nd uh for a wine of ours that has been sold out for quite a few months it's our petite straw it's probably our like most noteworthy wine it's also one that goes to barrel for like five and a half years. <laughs> so, wow. Okay. Um, it's very exciting that this wine is getting ready to be bottled. And I wanted to give, you know, longtime supporters in our wine club an opportunity to like get to taste it straight from the barrel, which is a pretty um, interesting experience and not something that 
most wineries around here do at all or very often. We haven't done one in maybe since 2019 or 2018. We haven't done a barrel tasting, so it'll be fun to kind of reintroduce people. And, And it's always fun to bring people into the barrel room because it's not a place that we ever take the public. Um, I mean, it's a massive room full of barrels. It's exactly what it sounds like. But it's it's the smell in there and the ambiance in there is really wonderful. And so it'll be fun to have folks in there for the first time in a long time. But Yeah. Yeah. And so, then, oh, go ahead. Sorry, sorry, I was going to say one more thing. Um, first Fridays is something that Viva Downtown um, kind of spearheaded for local businesses in downtown Reading. And we participate. And so the first Friday of every month, which is this Friday, January 6th, we have, um, yeah, Fiddle Bee down there playing music and me pouring wine. Hopefully I'll have some employees in there with me because <laughs> I think it'll be busy. But, um, yeah. yeah, we kind of open. There's a massive uh, window door at the front of the building that uh, Boardmart never used it, so most people don't know it was there. But on the right-hand side of the building, from floor to ceiling, that entire wall opens up, like accordion-style. Just Wow. So it's very indoor-outdoor. We'll put the band up there in the front. They'll play in the window, and you'll be able to hear them outside and come inside and get some wine. And Nice. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Sweet. So you bring up, you know, two-buck chuck, people having bad experiences with wine. You know, I work at a grocery store, so I see, like, the Snoop Dogg Cali Red. I don't even, I don't know if it's a Cabernet. I don't. Yeah. What's the difference between cheap bottle of wine? I always hear about athletes going out to dinner and, oh, they bought a $10,000 bottle of wine. I don't know what makes a bottle worth 10 grand because I just don't know anyway. But I mean, is it the aging? Is it just because it's it's an elitist thing? Like you said, I mean, what makes wine higher quality, I guess, than certain other things? Because there's definitely a difference in going into Walmart or somewhere and then something like you would do. Yeah. So what is the main difference? So I think there's two things going on there. One is marketing. Um, I can't get into Walmart. I'm in the holiday stores. I'm in Rayleigh's. I'm in those types of places that are smaller. I can't get into Walmart because I I physically don't make enough wine to get in there. So if you're buying wine um, at a massive retailer like that where they ship all over the country, um, you're only going to be accessing conventionally made wines in a massive batch style because that's all of the wineries that can can feed into a, a massive company like that. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that if that's what you enjoy. If you don't enjoy those wines, I mean, I, I'll, t- I'll be flat out honest. When I first started making wine, my own mom loved white Zinfandel, um, which is kind of the bastard child of the wine industry, more so than almost anything else. Okay. <laughs> um, and it's funny because then – you know, um, Red Zen is my favorite wine. <laughs> so, and this White Zinfandel is is a derivative of Red Zinfandel grapes. Um, but she had said to me some after like maybe a couple years of me making these massive, big, hearty red wines that, you know, I might never like the wine that you make. What if I only ever drink White Zinfandel? And I was like, Oh, Mom, I will fix you. <laughs> like, I there is something for everyone in wine. But if you have determined that your favorite wine is by the gallon, Carlo Rossi, off the grocery store shelf, I'm happy for you to drink that. I used to work for Gallo. I'm happy for them to have been in business all that all that time. Yeah. Um, I don't have a lot of faith in the product as far as interesting flavor profiles. But I think if that's what you like, if you've tried a few wines and that's what you like, buy it buy it every day. That's fine. 
Um, if you're interested in wine and you want to know about the grapes, about the vineyard, about the processes and the people that make your product, you have to go to a boutique winery. You have to be buying from your producer. And it's the same story that anybody producing beef or lamb or milk, like the Duvenvordens, if you don't right. know your farmer, you don't know your product. And so if you've followed much of our social media, I talk a lot about you know our sustainability efforts and our efforts in the winery and our efforts with our employees because I believe at my core that those things impact the wine that I produce and that I cannot produce a great wine if I don't have those things as a priority. And that's not something that I can write on the back of every single bottle, but it is something that if you spend more than a couple minutes at my winery will become very, very clear. And so if you only ever buy your wine on a grocery store shelf and you only are ever looking at the pretty label or the price tag, it's not something you can come across very readily from any winery of any size. But if you're interested in the people and the products and the processes, if you're trying to buy local, if you are concerned about what's going into your product, because that's a big thing in wine. A lot of people think it's just grapes in their bottle. And that's not true if you don't know where your wine is coming from. There's a lot of other things in your bottle besides just grapes. And so if you don't know your farmer, if you don't know your grower, if you don't know your winemaker, you don't know what's in your bottle, and you're also missing out on the entire story because you might take the experience of, I bought this bottle at the Enjoy store, and I took it home and I had a wonderful birthday dinner with a friend, and that was my enjoyment of the wine. But if you hear from the winemaker that these grapes were processed in this way, and we stomped them with our feet that day, and it was my birthday celebration that we were stomping those grapes for, and you take it home and have it for your birthday celebration with your friends, you've doubled down on the experience, and now that wine is something that like means something to you. And I was telling you earlier that um, your sense of smell and your memories are so closely tied together that I think that's why wine throughout the world is this big phenomenon and, and this bigger experience because you can very closely tie the story of the product you're producing to what somebody's going to take home. And they're going to tell that story to their friends or their family and have more to share than just, I don't know, I picked up this bottle. Right. It looked pretty. It, it was 10 bucks. Right. Yeah. This right. one was only four, you know. Right. It was a special. Yeah. And, and we all know price price should indicate quality. Does it? No. Those $10,000. Right. It's like $10,000 for a bottle of wine. I don't, I mean. I mean, I can charge you $10,000 for a bottle of wine. If you would feel cooler about yourself, I will charge you $10,000 for a bottle of wine. Someone will probably buy it because they feel it's like the elitist thing. I go, this was $10,000. You know, people have to brag. There's potentially reasons if you were getting a very, very old bottle from a notable chateau in the south of France or from a particular region of Italy, there's reasons that those prices would increase, but there's also high likelihood that that bottle is going to be too old or corked or <laughs> just no longer drinkable. Um, a lot of times people will buy their children, you know, when they turn 40 or when they turn 21, they'll buy them a bottle from the year they were born. And mm, so yeah, yeah. much wine is not built 
to be stored for 40 plus years. And so you've paid potentially a lot of money for this bottle and you've given it to somebody for their birthday, you know, from their birth year and they pop it open and it's just corked or incredibly um, oxidized in flavor. And so there's just not much left besides like faint oak and wetness. And you're just like, this is not delicious. I don't, I don't right. think you should have paid $5 for this, let alone 500, 5,000, whatever. Right. Um, yeah. So those numbers are pretty artificially inflated. Sometimes they're so, you know, sometimes they go to paying Snoop Dogg. Sometimes they go to paying right, and it's an like NFL twelve dollars. Yeah, or, yeah. Um, right. But a lot of times they're inflated because of an idea of of what the wine is. Can you get fantastic wine for twelve dollars? Yeah, you can. Um, you have to do a little more legwork. You're not going to get it on the store shelf. Mm. It's it's not okay. it's not called nineteen crimes or whatever right. you know yeah. it's that's not but but if you enjoy nineteen crimes and if what you're looking for is a wine that you can grab off the shelf and it's going to taste the same every time that's a particular type of customer and that's a valid way to drink wine it's not the type of customer that a small boutique winery generally has because our wine changes with the year with the climate with whatever's going on in the winery. And so even my blends are going to be marginally different from year to year, but my, you know, single individual grape varieties are going to be quite different from year to year. They might have some standard varietal characteristics. The Zinfandel is always going to be jammy and peppery, but last year it was uh, much softer on the palate than it is this year. And so it's not going to be something that you can just buy off the shelf every year and have it be that cookie cutter flavor. People will pay for that cookie cutter flavor. Um, sadly, sure. I think, I think there's more experience if they, and maybe there's more experience in life if you don't know exactly what you're getting every time. And maybe it's a new experience this time, but. Right. And some people I'll just, s- they people have a budget, you and know, people or, don't or, like change either. And that too, yeah. Not all pe- people like what they like, you know, yep. especially at a certain age. You know, you oh hit for sure, thirty-five, forty. It is what it is. So, personal question for me. Okay, I'm a butcher, sell steaks, a lot of steaks. Some people always ask, best wine that goes with this. You know, they buy a couple of New Yorks or whatever. Hey, what's the best? I'm gonna make it at home barbecue, especially during the summer. You mm-hmm. know, what's the best wine to go? I have no idea how to answer that question. I just answer with whatever is the most expensive so we can make money or whatever <laughs> is notable. Because I just have no idea. I just, yeah. you, you fake it till you make it. But what is, personally to you, in your opinion, what's your favorite and what goes best with like a nice New York steak in the summer? So number one, when you come into the downtown tasting room, we're going to sit down and taste through the wines and I'm going to show you why to recommend certain wines. So that when you do this in the future, you're going to give them a recommendation that like you can stand behind. Okay. Number two, Thank you. Uh, <laughs> I got help. you, I got yes. you. Um, cool. Number two is, yeah, a big red is going to be pretty easy. A cab, a zin, a petite syrah, pretty easy. I would ask them, you know, just to, to give them a little bit of a say in what they're going to have. Um, do you like a big red or do you want something that's a little more approachable? Generally, when you ask that question, you're asking, do you want something that is tannic and heavy on the tongue? Um, Or do you want something that's a little softer, maybe even sweeter? If they want something that's a little softer, go with a red blend. 19 Crimes is fine. Go with a red blend. Okay. Um, 
if they want something that is a heavy hitter, yeah, look for a Zen or a cab. Certainly a Napa cab is going to be great with a charbroiled beef of any cut um, because it's going to have enough tannins and enough heavy flavors to stand up to it. Um, I always recommend Zen. Like, I mean, I told you it's my favorite. Yeah, Yeah. I do love it. Um, But it it stands up to a lot of the flavors. You know, if you're going to say that this region, that the West Coast or that California has particular flavors, yeah, charbroiled meats and fresh vegetables and avocado, I guess, are them, right? Um, Zinfandel's always going to go well with those things. And so it's an easy, it grows really well here. You can get a lot of great Zin here. for a decent price, um, more so than, you know, a Napa Cab can get pricey really quick. You can find yourself in that $150 a bottle range very fast with cabs. Um, I'm sure. And, and there's a lot of goods in to find at a lower price point. Um, if I were going to recommend something from my seller, I'm going to tell you to pick up a bottle of our Petite Syrah because it's luscious on the tongue. Like, it's so velvety and soft, but it has these massive tannins that like kind of just linger underneath. It's super well-balanced because it's been aged for five and a half years. It's like all the things that you would want to stay about a well-aged steak. And so it, they just, they marry really nicely together, especially if you've done any sort of like, you know, if you're, instead of if you're not going to charbroil it, if you're going to do it with like a butter over the top or anything like that, it's it's got the depth to go with that type of a steak. So it's usually what I serve, like, when we do prime rib for Christmas dinner. It's usually that or maybe a Sangiovese. But, um, yeah, that, that petite straw, that massive, massive – I mean, it's black. It's not even red in the glass. That's like the some one. of them are, like, so dark. It's, yeah. 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 I mean, it's, it's one where, like, if it gets splashed on my eyebrows or on my hair, it's going to dye my hair. My hands – I mean, like, I, wow. wear, I wear black nail polish a lot for a reason – because if we're if we're dealing with the really really dark wines, it's going to stain everything, and you're not going to be able to just scrub it off. <laughs> That's not a good look. <laughs> so, right. Yeah. yeah. So go back to the tasting room for a second. What what is a, t- a tasting room? I guess because I know you guys sell bottles. You can taste test different things. Mm-hmm. So there's open things on the shelf, I assume. But what? more goes into that as far as like the retail side for you as far as selling stuff you know if, if I was to come in with George and, yeah. and we're just I have no I don't have the first clue about how this stuff goes I mean what yeah. would what direction would you steer a new customer in so and what do you guys sell yeah so we have almost everything that the burn that Bernsini produces is available at the downtown tasting room at our winery tasting room everything we make is available there um, the difference being that certain things like, say, the naturally um, produced sparkling wine, we produce such a small amount of that that, like, nah, you got to come to the winery for that bad boy. <laughs> like, it's just okay. there. It's special. Um, at the tasting room in downtown, you have three options. You can buy, bo- buy a bottle and open it there or take it with you. Um, so maybe, you know, we've had folks come in um, who are, like, headed to an event at the Cascade two couples, they bought a bottle, grabbed a couple glasses, they sat down and shared a bottle and then walked down to the Cascade. And it was it was an incredible moment because they had walked to the tasting room from their home, shared a bottle of wine, walked to the Cascade another, what, three blocks. I'm sure it was a nice walk. Had a lovely walk, but also <laughs> yeah. like they, you know, it's tough to get an Uber or, or a cab here. And 
drinking and driving wasn't an issue for them. Parking wasn't an issue for them. And they felt that, like, the three-block walk to the tasting room and the three-block walk to the Cascade was, like, their neighborhood and that they could readily achieve this in their neighborhood. And I was like, yes, Redding, yeah. you're doing the damn thing, finally. Uh, the Market um, Street's nice. I mean, being right is. there, I know you guys aren't directly there, but you're right next to it. Oh, yeah. You know, it's yeah, close enough. Distance and, yeah. For sure. Um, so, yeah, you can, you can buy by the bottle. You can buy by the glass if you know what you like. Most folks who haven't been to our winery before, though, are choosing to do a tasting flight. And so there's five wines that, and I have, like, a, a list drawn out with my tasting notes, you know, so tasting notes from the person who made these wines, helping you understand what you're tasting. Um, and so we'll start with the lightest of those and work all the way through all five, and you'll get, you know, a one-ounce pour of each of those, and we'll be standing there with you, talking to you about what you do and don't like about each one, You'll get to revisit anything that you really liked, um, and you can make a choice then if you want to buy a bottle or another glass. Um, that's usually where people start, and it's rare. It is a rare day indeed that that's where they stop. They almost always end up buying wine to take home, falling in love with something themselves, or being like, oh my gosh, my mom would love this blend. I'm going to take two bottles home to her, or I'm going to take a bottle of this for someone's birthday tomorrow. It almost always ends in at least purchasing a bottle because the prices are good. I mean, my prices, they're not two buck chuck, but like they're good. And so it's its just an easy transition of you just tried all of these wines. And it is a rare day indeed that someone doesn't fall in love with at least one. But usually they're like, oh, man, how am I going to choose? I'll take all five or I'll take three of these. And <laughs> it tends yeah. to happen that way. Um, I do intend for all of my wines to be approachable enough for even folks who are new to wine to enjoy. I don't want anybody – I've had experiences, especially when I was new in the industry, where um, – and maybe it was maybe it was an older winemaker who wanted to maybe show me who's boss. Flex. But, um, yeah, flex the yeah. muscles and show off. Yeah. But I've had them hand me out of, you know, out of all the wines they could have handed me, handed me their most astringent, least aged, really heavy duty wine. And it was, you know, it was a physical reaction that I had to some of those wines where either it gives you almost immediate heartburn because the tannins are so high or it's like very drying on your tongue and you're like licking the roof of your mouth looking for a glass of water. It's uncomfortable regardless. It's physically uncomfortable to drink wines like that, especially if if it's just out of the blue, like you, you're not going through a tasting or you're not having it with food. And nobody wants to be physically uncomfortable in their job or in an in a fun experience like wine tasting. Right. Yeah. So um, I've had that done to me a few times. I don't want to do that to any customers. And so I work very hard to make sure that all of my wines are, you know, readily enjoyable by most people. Some folks are never going to like red wine, but right. I don't know. I mean, keep coming back. I'll find something for you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I want to get into... Uh, backtracking again, you mentioned a little earlier the process and whatnot. I work at Sprouts Specialty Store, quote unquote. People mm -hmm. come in, they want organic. I want no sulfites, no sulfates. I don't even know how. I mean, the barrels. I mean, do they certify them organic? I mean, you know, it's like what kind of a. I I don't know. Again, it's a thing where I'm like, I'm kind of just steering them in a the direction that. Oh yeah, I mean that says organic and it's only thirteen bucks. You know, right. do that. But how do you guys process your wine? 
And I mean, is it certified organic? What is in it? What isn't in it? And you said it was an important thing to you. I'm sure it is. Uh, what's something that for the listeners is an important thing you'd want to get out there as far as what is and isn't in your wine? Yeah. So um, from the vineyard through to the fin- finished product in the bottle, we are 100% organic. We are not certified because we actually go beyond that. Um, we are looking at becoming something called SIP certified, which is sustainability in practice. Mm. Uh, it is a long, long certification process. I'll say, I've talked to Lori and, and Allie about this. That stamp <laughs> it takes is, a lot. And for a small producer, it's very expensive. It's very expensive. Yeah. It's, it's, it is prohibitively expensive, I'll be honest with you. Um, I could have applied and gotten organic certified about two years ago. Um, the cost of it is not worth, I, I, I can put that stamp on, you know, if I, if I bought into this, I could put that stamp on my bottle. I can't charge enough more for my wine here locally to make it worth it for me. And the point of doing it was never to get the stamp. Okay. From, from day one, the right. point was never to get the stamp. The point was to do the right thing. Okay. So the right thing in my vineyard is to use organic sulfur. So we do spray sulfur on the vines, um, usually two, maybe three times a year um, in the initial growing stages to keep um, mold and mildew primarily from, from getting out of hand. Um, but then we're really lucky. It gets so hot here so fast <laughs> that <laughs> yes. we actually cannot spray past that. So when I say we normally do two to three applications, um, most wineries in the U.S. spray two to three times a month for the entire growing season. So from like, say, April through to November. I spray two to three times a year maximum. Um, We didn't even get that third application this year. (laughs) It just got so hot so fast. Um, And and. You know, because it does get so hot and it's so dry, we really don't have an issue with mold and mildew. So I don't, I just have a little window where it can be kind of touch and go. Um, Sulfur is the only thing that we spray on our plants at all in the vineyard, and it's an organic sulfur. It's long gone before the grapes are there, and and it's not an issue for us. Um, Some of the wines that I produce, so the natural sparkling wine was no sulfite added, clean as could be. We took those grapes out of the vineyard, stomped them with clean feet, put them, put the liquid in a tank and started the fermentation, put the tank, put the liquid from the tank in a bottle. It was the natural yeast off the skin of the grapes from the vineyard. No additives whatsoever into the finished product. Like just, this is grapes in a bottle, end of. Um, You cannot get more natural than that. There's a lot of reasons you don't want to do that with all of your wine, though. It's not very predictable, and it's very, very labor-intensive. It's also pretty energy-intensive because you have to keep it cold to keep all of the other bacteria and yeast at bay. And so um, that's the biggest reason that we wouldn't do that for everything. The rest of my wines, I do use organic yeast, um, and, and other additives, like if we needed to add um, tartaric acid, which is the acid that is naturally occurring in grapes, you have tartaric, malic, and citric acid. These are the acids that are in all Tons foods. of food. Yeah. I mean, Tons this is, yeah, like yeah. the apples you eat are, it's right. malic acid. That's what turns it brown. Um, Malliard browning. It's also what gives you a nice spray tan. 
Oh, okay. Science. <laughs> yeah. Oh, fun fact. Um, but so if you add, we, we might need to add a few of those things. Um, they all come from organic sources. We don't do additives like polypropyl vinyl for fining. Um, so you'll see in my wines, especially ones that have been aged for a long time, in the bottom of the bottle, there could be um, some tartrate crystals at the bottom. And sometimes folks get upset by that and they'll think like, oh, that's a quality issue. It's not. It's part of the aging process of the wine. And when you're used to buying large format wines at the grocery store, you don't see that because they've used things like plastic to fine their wine. Or they've added um, the blood of sturgeon. It's called Isinglass in the wine industry. They've added Hmm. egg whites. They've added, there's all these things. A lot of them are just chemicals that nobody can remember the names to. Um, Sometimes they're natural things that you could, you can add cow's blood to help fine out any of that stuff. I don't do that. Um, cool. The only type, yeah, the only type of finding <laughs> that good. I, yeah, it's pretty gross. Some of the things and and just unnecessary, in my opinion. I don't want to add. I was gonna say that plastics. doesn't sound very, like why would you? I mean, egg whites. That's so random. Yeah, and it also makes your product no longer vegan, and to take a product that doesn't have any animal byproduct in it and make it have an animal byproduct in it is just like one more thing you don't need to do. Um, in my opinion. Um, the other thing is that there's bentonite clay, which is literally like if you ever do a clay mud mask, that's what bentonite clay is. Um, it's dug out of the ground. It's exactly what it sounds like. It's clay. Um, and it can be used to fine some wines. And so that's the only type of fining that I do. Um, so I do intentionally keep our vineyard and our wine production as minimal, as low invasive as possible, intentionally for the health of the humans drinking the product, intentionally for the health of the soil in my vineyard, intentionally for the health of my employees as we work around all this stuff. I was going to say, I mean, you're touching it and working with it. And, and we're drinking it every day. And, and we're, we're drinking it at different stages. I just, yeah, all of those things are important to me. And I just don't think that it's a situation where more is better. There's plenty of wineries that, you know, these are very conventional winemaking practices that use these things and they have their reasons for doing it. It's 100% the reason why I think you should buy local and you should know your farmers because whatever your priorities are, if you don't know the person you're buying the product from, you're not going to know these things about the product you're buying. And you, you can't know what you're putting in your body if you aren't talking to the people making the product. Um, yeah, so all the way through, I'm, I'm intentional in what I'm doing. We're getting weird with some stuff in the vineyard. We're starting some biodynamic processes in the vineyard, which is based on the phases of the moon. You base your farming practices on the phases of the moon. Um, and it's this really old style of farming that is about creating an entire biome within your planting space where you have... Uh, beneficial insects and beneficial um, bacteria and yeast and fungus growing that keep bad stuff from getting in and um, doing cover crops. We've done cover crops multiple years now. Um, They keep weeds and invasive species from getting in. It also puts nutrients back into the soil so we're not having to put down fertilizer. 
It's been rough on the cover crop. The last two years of drought have been real rough on the cover crop. I'm sure. Um, We had pretty big fails the last two years with cover crop, which is, um, sadly, it's the hard side of going organic, going sustainable, going biodynamic. Um, It's probably the thing that keeps me most, not the cost and not the length of the process, but it's probably the one thing that keeps me most from going ahead and getting certified yet because we're, you know, I'm still, this was just the fifth growing year that I've been at the winery and I guess I want to reserve the right to do whatever I need to do in our current climate to make sure we don't lose the vineyard, we don't lose the entire crop. Um, Last year, because of the drought, my winery was about a 25% decrease in volume, but friends that I'm that I know in Oregon at wineries up there where it got so, so hot and they weren't used to it. Like records. I mean, yeah. they, they lost 70% or more of their crops. Some vineyards died because it was just, it, they, they're just not built for that. And they don't even, some wineries up there are um, dry farmed, so they don't even have irrigation to run to the vines. Um, and so, yeah, at this point, I reserve the right to do what I need to do to protect my crop. Um, and not being certified allows me to do that. We haven't had to do any conventional farming up until this point, and so we're not, you know, putting any synthetic fertilizers out there or anything like that. Um, but until I have a better handle, a better understanding, and just maybe a few more years under my belt, I just am leery of, like, going ahead with the cost and the effort of any of those certifications and then having to make the decision of, like, we have to put down, you know, like I'm, I'm looking at, are we going to do a silica sunscreen this year to keep the, the grapes from raisining in the really crazy heat? It's organic, so I guess I can, but I don't know where it fits in like the sustainability model. And so if I want to do that, would I keep myself from being able to get sustainable certified? And, you know, those are the, that's just one more question I have to ask myself. And that's a long list. So right, yeah, <laughs> so right now we're not um, certified. We we may in the future. And I think this was probably close to what Lori had said too about Dubenborden Farms is they do the right thing for their animals. I do the right thing for my vines, for my people, for my soil, and for my customers. That will always be my focus. Whether that fits the stamp, the stamp, yeah. and whether that stamp is worth the money, we're, I'm not sure yet. I right now it hasn't been. Um, maybe one day, if the people of far northern California are like, "Hey, man, we really want a sustainable wine," then it might be worth it. But it's also going to limit who I could buy grapes from in the future. Eventually, you know, we're we're completely planted out at my winery, so the eight acres of fruit we have that's that's max. That's all I've got. Um, so as I want to buy fruit from other producers, that'll have to be a conversation that I have with them. Um, and it, it would potentially limit who I could buy grapes from. And so, you know, yeah. big, big, long answer to a, what you thought was a short question. I'm sure. No, I, I, that, it's all good. I mean, some people really care about that stuff and some people, they don't want to, you know, I, yeah. I'm sure if, if you were to, let's say you throw the stamp on there and a bottle of Cabernet becomes $40 because of that. Some people are like, I want the non-organic. And you're like, why did I even go through? But some people only eat organic or, you know, they follow a vegan diet or, 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 you know. Whatever. Whatever it is. I mean, well, and something like eggs, 
eggs are one of the top allergens for humans, which is kind of crazy that we're then adding it to a product that doesn't need eggs. Like you don't need eggs in your in, wine. In your wine, yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's it's tough stuff like that. But then um, when you're talking about the more mass produced, there's a organic or an organ tilth or w- whatever the stamp is on the bottle. Um, the one thing that I say to my friends when I talk to them about that is that um, there are organic fertilizers. There are organic pesticides. There are organic fungicides. So having a stamp that says organic or whatever, that doesn't mean no pesticides right. are sprayed it. doesn't on it. mean what people think yes. it, it means sometimes. And, and more than anything, I think people knowing who are growing the products that they're taking into their body. Um, and if that's not possible, if, if it doesn't fit your budget or it's just not realistic, um, and you're buying your stuff at the grocery store, which I think most of us are. I don't. I don't know many people who can afford to buy direct from their grower for everything they consume. Right. Oh yeah. Um, oh yeah. And I. I just don't. I mean, even as accessible as it is here, that's still hard to do. And financially, it's unrealistic for most of us. Right. Um, even still, you can educate yourself on what those things mean, what those stamps do and don't mean. Sadly they mean less than most people think they mean. The assumption is that it means no pesticides were used on this product, and that's not true. Um, I was going to say one more thing that, so sulfites in wine. Sulfites are naturally occurring in wine. They're naturally occurring in a lot of foods. They're also heavily used in basically all produced foods. So anything that's like crackers, cheese, salami, Dried apricots, nuts, those all have tons of sulfites on them. So I do get folks in with the ask of, do you have anything that's sulfite-free? There is no wine that's sulfite-free. And this this is, I imagine you must get questions like this at the store. It's the one I get the most about yes. the wine, yeah. You'll see that some wines say no sulfites added. Added, Which right. means that they did not add sulfites or it, it actually, you know, and this is knowing what that means, um, it actually means that no more than 15 um, parts per million of sulfites were added. So up to 15 could be added. Um, the sulfites in your Doritos, that's like 2,000 parts per million. <laughs> so, it's like food colored and it's all sorts. Yeah. I mean, people don't realize how bad some of that stuff really some is it for really you. Is, but even some, some really phenomenal foods have really high sulfite counts. And so if someone is very sensitive to sulfites, they're going to know these things. They're not going to be eating any crackers, chips, anything like that, you know, that's like a baked good. They're definitely not going to be eating any cheeses or any um, meats, no nuts for sure. Any dried nuts, no. Any dried fruits, no. Right. Because those have such crazy high sulfite counts. If someone has just heard that sulfites are bad for them and that sulfites are in wine, and I think this happens often, they likely don't have a sensitivity to it, but they're concerned about it. And that's valid. Be concerned about the things you put into your body. I'm, yeah. I'm, I, I want people to, to think about what they're putting into their body. But um, the sulfites that I put into my wine is less than 75 parts per million ever. Wineries can have up to 300 parts per million in the U.S. of sulfites added. There's a big difference between 15 parts per million, which is the no sulfites added limit. I go to up to 75 as a maximum for my winery. 
um, which I feel is like enough that I can protect my wine from spoiling, but is not enough that it would bother most people and that I can feel um, confident in the product that I'm putting out and that it's not going to go bad on the store shelves or in someone's home. Um, it's going to be reliable and that it's not going to be a harmful amount. And then the other thing is that, you know, look at what else you're putting on your plate. Are you putting together a charcuterie board with 5 million parts per million of sulfite on it and then having a glass of wine and now you have a headache? Because your headache didn't come from the glass of wine. <laughs> your headache came from the massive charcuterie board that had, you know, cheese, crackers, everything. salami. I mean, all, all the delicious stuff. I'm a huge <laughs> it's fan. It's always the best stuff. It is. Yeah, yeah I'm a it huge sucks. fan of all of it. Yeah. But I just, I, I do like to help people understand that um, if they if they have a known sensitivity, here's how you work with that. If they just don't like the idea of consuming something more than they need to, great. Here's some options that are listed as low sulfite or no sulfite. Um, but also, let's take a look at what else is in your cart. <laughs> you know, right? Yeah. And quit blaming it on the wine. Right. But, you know, and that's my, that's my soapbox for today. <laughs> people love escape guilt for sure. Yeah. Oh gosh. And what's, wine's a good one. <laughs> <laughs> what's the toughest part of owning a winery? And what's the biggest thing you've learned? Because, I mean, we talked about the liquor licenses. And then and, and once you get past all that, like we were just talking about people want no sulfides. They want this. They want yeah. that. But, like, what's the biggest headache? What's the toughest part of that just people don't even know that you have to grind out every day or you have to do a lot of to yeah. keep this thing going? Um, I, there were some surprises for me, you know. I have managed folks before, but I've never been the owner. So being the managing owner, the operator, is a new role for me. And so learning who I work well with, who I don't work well with, and, and how to figure that out, that was that was a big step initially. But, um, yeah, customers are interesting. They're very interesting. Yes. And you get some that are amazing and so supportive and, and really want to see you succeed. Um, when you buy someone else's business, though, and we kind of touched on this, that people don't like change. And so when you buy someone else's business, that's they've been in business for a long time, um, and they meant a lot to people, and people had had a sense of community and a sense of ownership right. of this old business. It's very personal then. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they take it incredibly personal, especially at the winery, because we had a lot of folks that used to come help pick grapes and, and participate in the production of the product. And so they, they really, they did. They had a sense of ownership. And um uh, when I stepped in, my intention was never to just change things for the sake of changing things. I wanted to improve things, and I had to grow the winery. In order for it to be financially possible, I had to grow the winery. Um, and that led to some changes. Mostly it led to massive improvements. We've doubled our production. We've improved the quality of the wine. The wine is more consistent. We've put together a 200-and-something person wine club. Like These are big improvements. But they're changes to some folks, and change is right. hard. And so hard. I was shocked at the amount of pushback that I got from some folks who did not want to see anything change. And it, it wasn't a personal attack, but it was hard for me to not take it personal. Of course. Um, especially, you know, when you're pouring everything into a business. Um, yeah, a lot of, like, what makes you think you can run this place? And I had to – for a while, it would really upset me. And then I had I'm to take it. Sure. Yeah. Um, I had to take a step back and recognize that it's not personal. They're not attacking me to be mean to me. Um, they have a sense of ownership. Maybe it's misplaced. Maybe 
you know, they really did participate massively in this winery getting to the stage that it's at. And I can be grateful for their help in getting it to this stage. Um, But yeah, I I had to get to the point where I could uh, quickly and kind of um, like cheekily push back and be like, oh, my education, my experience, and the fact that I bought the place, why, why do you think you should own it, you know? Yeah. And, and people would kind of step back and be like, oh, okay. You know, like, first off, she's not going to let me railroad her. But um, so some she's, people she's, like that challenge. Some people yeah. want to just kind of see what you're made of. And, and everyone, everyone that I've kind of flicked back in that way um, has really kind of stepped up and been like, oh, okay, great. Well, let's let's see what you've done. Let's see where you're at. Let's, let's taste these wines. Um, and... If anyone, it, it doesn't happen so much anymore. I think we're at this stage. I've been there long enough that people don't, you know, kind of try and push me anymore. But um, I was surprised about that aspect of it at first. And and other uh, small business owners who've bought an old business, I've heard the same from them, that there was just a lot of concern from folks who had this sense of ownership of the place. You kind of got to prove would it. Change. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you got to prove um, it to some of them. That was shocking. Um, <laughs> I'm sure. The um, I was not sure if I would, because um, I'm still working full time in a technical career, running the winery, running the tasting rooms. You know, I have employees That's that crazy. help. Crazy, yeah. It's a lot. It's a lot. Um, I did not think that I would like that aspect of it. Um, I love my other job. I know it's important. But I, I'm ready to, to start transitioning to just the winery. But I have loved five years of doing both because I get to do the winery. And it's allowed me to, like, double the size, the production of the winery in five years, which is or not quite five years, which is really fast. Um, and so I'm, I'm super thankful for it. I'm happy to have worked as hard as I have for that long. And I did not. I thought... I mean, I'll do this as long as I have to, you know, but right. I've, I've loved doing it. So um, it feels like I've earned where I'm at now. And I mean, maybe it would feel that way anyway, but <laughs> right. at least at you least I know this way, is, yeah, this is yeah. hard fought and it's, right. you know, I value where I'm at. So Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So what comes next? It's 2022. It's the very, very top of the year. You've been doing it for almost five years. What comes next for the winery? Yeah, um, new wines. The new wines are coming out, which is always exciting for me and my crew. Um, But also, this is the first year where we're planning our events way in advance. So we've got events planned in June and July already. We've got Field to Fork events where, um, gosh, one of the last Field to Fork events we did, uh, it was in 2019, you know, the last time we had big events. But um, everything but the salt and pepper was grown and produced in Tehama County for that event. And it was a four-course seeded meal. So, you know, that's that's a high bar. I don't know if we'll hit that again. But um, that's that's the goal, is to be able to produce another, you know, 100 people at a table in the vineyard with twinkle lights overhead, sipping my wine, eating local food. That's the goal. Um, but, yeah, we've got uh, Jonathan Foster kicking off his summer concert tour at the winery for – third or fourth year he's a local folk singer who I just adore and he has kicked off his last year was like a national tour he went all over and he kicked it off at Bernsini every year 
which is always fun. That's um, awesome. Yeah, yeah. It, I'm I'm mostly excited to bring back the big events. Um, that's what the winery was known for forever, and the last two years we've been, um, you know, no events in 2020 whatsoever, and then really um, like only outdoor or only like smaller group events this past year. And so yeah, 2022 will hopefully be the reimagining of our big events. We will have everything from like glass blowers. You can blow your own stemless wine glass at the winery and then go drink out of it. Yeah. Oh, cool. (laughs) Yeah. That's awesome. Um, Live music, food trucks, uh, everything. And then hopefully, you know, like on the internal side, um, my goal is some of the big changes we're making in the vineyard. Hopefully we'll be seeing the impacts from those this year. Um, It seems like we've got a lot of rainfall and a lot of snowfall in the mountains. So I'm hopeful that we've recharged our, you know, aquifers and that we're, we, we're not going to have a drought this year. I was saying, you might not get a drought this year. I you mean, that's might, the hope. You might get lucky. Man, that's yeah. the hope. Um, it's not done yet. So I'm, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm hopeful for a good harvest this year. I'm hopeful for a good harvest every year, but this year, the outcomes of some of the vineyard work we've been doing for the last few years will be visible. And so I'm I'm, there's an extra bit of like excitement there. Um, but yeah, new wines. We'll be doing our second sparkling wine for the first, like for the second time this year. And uh, we learned a lot last time. We sold out of it now. So it must have gone well enough, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, but, and then, yeah, this year might be the first year that we buy grapes um, from other producers. And the goal there is that, you know, we're just producing more wine to sell as a growing business. That's important. But um, also we'll be able to bring in some varieties of grapes that I don't have growing on the property, which will mean we can create other things. Um, potentially a white, if I can figure that out, if I can uh, figure figure out exactly how to put things together that, <laughs> that do what I want. Um, and then, yeah, definitely some reds that we aren't producing yet. So, Awesome. Yeah. Sweet. Anything you want to promote before we get out of here? Any, I mean, we have the truffle chocolate event coming up and, yeah. and first Friday's kickoff this Friday the 7th. Um, but anything else you want to promote in the month of January and February? Yeah, so January 22nd is our barrel tasting event at the winery. It's a big deal because we don't do them that often. And it's it's a sneak peek inside the belly of the beast for sure. You get to go into the cellar, into the barrel room, and you get to try wine that is legitimately not available to the public. Um, so that that event, it, tickets are on Eventbrite. They're $45. It comes with your own private little charcuterie. And your taste, yeah, full tasting flight, but you also get this barrel tasting experience. So you'll come into the barrel room with me. I will literally open up a barrel and pull out a glass of wine for you. Um, and it's it's pretty amazing and and an opportunity to do something that's just not done every day. Um, so yeah, if you guys are around on the twenty second, come down and check it out because it's it is the type of insight into the wine production that is just not available year round. So. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And then people can find tickets to this stuff at. Either on Eventbrite or on our social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram and links to our events are on both of those. But tickets, tickets are available on Eventbrite. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks, Brady. I I appreciate it. I learned a ton and I hope the (laughs) listeners did as well. So I appreciate it. Yeah. If you guys made it this far, thank you for listening. I'll be back here later on this week, and have a good day. See you guys later.